If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For if you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is er earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked but when you were living in them, but now you must put away all, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, slave-free, but Christ is in all and in all. Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we lift up your holy name. Father, you are a God who is powerful, but you're a God who is wise and you perfectly instrument uh, your power. You wield it with precision, not with chaos. Father, you're a God who is all knowledgeable but you know how to use your wisdom, your knowledge, and accomplish your purposes. Father, we are weak. Our perspective is, uh, is limited and narrow. Our abilities are weak, but you are a God who is strong and wise, and you have all the information and you know how to process it and work it well. You do all things well. Father, we thank you that it's not about us. It's not about our abilities. It's not about our self-esteem and our self-confidence, but it's about trusting in what you have done and who you are. Father, we thank you that your word continually reminds us of that truth. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that it is not about the do's and don'ts that we can accomplish, but the done that Christ has accomplished. Father, I pray that you would uh, be with us in this moment as we hear your word proclaimed. As I work to proclaim and they work to receive, may the Holy Spirit make that a profitable time to be able to separate the, uh, what is not of you and to make Christ known. May your spirit work to convict and to encourage and to woo and to um, correct that we be, may be more like Jesus today, tomorrow, and for eternity. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. There it is, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11. Verses 5 through 11 as we continue on the latter half of Colossians. And 
I'm very thankful for that ability to continue in the privilege of going through God's Word verse by verse, seeing the big picture of what the Lord is doing in our midst. On April 19, 1861, in order to defeat the Confederate Army, Abraham Lincoln and General Winfield Scott announced the Union blockade of southern ports. This would be the largest blockade in the history of warfare up to the time. It spanned 3,500 miles from the northern Mississippi all the way through New England coast. It had 180 ports it was attempting to cut off, all to suffocate the Confederate Army. At the time, it would have been the largest ever that was attempted, and it would, in essence, cut the Confederacy off from Europe and uh, restrict their ability to move supplies and troops by water and force them to move those things by land on a much more inefficient ability. Because up to this point, the uh, Union Army, though they outproduced and they outnumbered and they outfinanced uh, the Confederacy, they were getting their tails kicked and things were not going well. Things like Bull Run and um, the McClellan's hapless general as a hapless general and the fact that now the Confederate Army had invaded the North, something had to be done. Something was the blockade, an attempt to slowly choke the Confederate Army that was, that was beating them. Ocean Park, like the Civil War that raged in our nation 150 years ago, there is a civil war that is raging with every Christian who is, has new life in Christ. You have life in Christ, and you are dead to the slavery of sin, but sin is not dead in you. Let me say that again. You are dead to the authority and bondage and slavery of sin. That reign is over, but sin is not dead. And in one last, final, desperate measure, sin is waging war upon you. If you want to beat sin, don't minimalize it, don't marginalize it, don't um, um, poo-poo around it. You need to kill it. You need to kill it. Because if you don't, you will constantly be at war with it. Last week, Paul introduced the reality that we're living in this age. And he calls us to set our minds on things above where Christ is. He tells us to live today how you will live for eternity. But we, and we know that in eternity we'll be free from sin and we'll live lives of, general, um, of genuine holiness, but we know now, if we're honest about it, that we still struggle with the reality of sin. If people knew our thoughts and our actions and our motivations, we would be so ashamed because we claim Christ, but we still struggle with this 
petty stuff and stuff are like, by this point I should have victory and it's the same old battle and the same old skirmishes with the same old army that I keep chasing my tail after. Why can't I be free from sin? This is what Paul tells us in our desire and our pursuit of holiness. To live for Christ, how we're going to live today for eternity, to live for Christ, we must put sin to death. And in this section, he gives us ways to put our sin to death. How do we put off the old man, the old self that was once in bondage to sin, and how do we put on Christ? It's the image of a garment. We take off the old filthy garment and we put on the new, holy, righteous linen. But I'll tell you, it's not as easy as changing your shirt or putting on a new pair of breeches. If it was that easy, it wouldn't, it, it, we would have it down. But it's hand-to-hand combat. It's ugly, it's bloody, it's war. But the thing is, we have the secret weapon. We have the Holy Spirit. And we have the ability, because the Lord has given us ability, that ability, to be able to put it to death. Now, the Union blockade in the first years of the Civil War, they uh, uh, had to stop 180 ports, but there were three main ports that they had to block to be able to make their blockade successful. They needed New Orleans because New Orleans controlled the Mississippi River. It was at the mouth, and if they could get New Orleans, they could control the traffic on the river, and they worked their way up through places like New Orleans and Vicksburg and all those places. They needed Mobile Bay, because Mobile Bay was the main uh, 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 port on the, the Gulf of Mexico, and they needed Charleston, because Charleston was what fed the army from the east. So they needed those three ports, and they began to strategically uh, attack those places. If they couldn't control those ports, that they would just continually feed the army, and that army would, that would ultimately defeat them the army they thought they would beat in a matter of mere months. This is the, ar- the, the battle that raged for five years and divided our country. Likewise, Paul gives us three ways and three strongholds or three ports that we must put to death, that we must control, because those three things are what feed the flesh. And if we're going to kill the flesh, we're going to have to starve it. We're going to have to poison it with the grace of God and poison it with the word of God. You've probably never heard the phrase poison it with the grace of God and poison it with the word, but that's what we do. Just like we poison weeds to kill them, we need to poison our flesh by the, the, the uh, antidote, the, the poison of the word of God that destroys that. And so what Paul does in these three sections gives us three lists, three ways that we put them off. One, he said, put lust to death. Then he says, two, put away passion. And three, put down the barriers, the old barriers of the old life, because they divide, and when we are divided, we are conquered. So first thing we see is we see the first one, the first port, the first uh, stronghold that we put to death is lust. In verses 5 through 7 of Colossians chapter 3. Put to death, Paul writes, therefore, therefore, why is therefore, therefore? He says, set your minds on things above. And when you set your minds on things above, you can't set your minds on things on earth. And these are the things on earth that you need to put to death. 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he gives a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He, uh, Paul addresses this first uh, uh, lust which wages war against the things that are above. These earthly lusts in passion that make war against the kingdom of God. And these five passions are flowing from the lust of the flesh. The first thing is sexual immorality. It's the actual word pornea. And you know, uh, pornography, pornea, uh, is, is sexual uh, perversion. And all throughout scriptures, it's understood that sexual intercourse is engaged only within the marital con, uh, co- covenant between a man and a woman exclusively. Anything outside of that is pornea, is sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and a multitude of perversions, pornography, all the abuse that we see of children and women and men even, that is all under pornea, sexual immorality. Then it goes on to say impurity. What happens when we divulge and treasure and feed our flesh with such things, the character of that person uh, is contaminated by embracing such things. It is the gradual hardening of the heart by the embrace of sin. Passion is an overpowering desire to gratify such natures and such desires. Evil desires are not the temptations or attractions of, that come up in the flesh. Like, for example, I am a man, I am attracted to women, um, I am married to my wife, therefore I, I uh, forsake all others and I uh, put that away. But evil desires is taking the natural desire of a man for a woman and perverting that and and clinging to that and treasuring that where it becomes, it begins to eat and erode the holiness and righteousness that God calls us to do. But at the heart of this list is idolatry. Idolatry that is fueled by covetousness. Or if anybody has the NIV or the New American Standard, they translate this word greed. Greed elevates sinful desires as the ultimate end. Greed says, I want this thing, and it's the most important thing. So you can take bad things, and you can take good things, and you can elevate those to the throne of your heart, and you elbow out God as the source of your passions and pursuit and desires, and greed makes that sin what the, the, the center of those things. And what we do is to fuel our greed, we go to idols. And we go and we tell our idols, if I do this for you, I will get this in return. Now, ancient world, it was a little less um, sophisticated. They would go to gods. They would go to Zeus and Baal and the Asherah and you name it, all the ancient stuff you see. And they would say, if I give you food, if I give you worship, if I give you sacrifice, if I sacrifice my child to you, I will get in return what I really want. That's fertility, 
power, success, successful crops, protection. But today, we are a little more sophisticated than our brothers and sisters who shared our sinful hearts some millennials ago. But we now, we go to our gods and we give our gods and our idols what they want. Money. We give them our votes this time of year. We give them our time, our attention, our bodies so that we get what we want. We want security. We want fame. We want popularity. We want peace. We want pleasure. Idolatry is nothing more than a devotion to pursuing our lusts. Seeking after something to fulfill your life outside of how you were designed to find your fulfillment and your satisfaction in your Creator. We were designed for God. We were designed by our Creator to find our satisfaction in Him. And lust perverts that and says, you don't need what God can give you. You need this. And lust drives us to do so many things. I remember talking to somebody who had um, really got him, themselves into a pickle. Serious pickle. And they looked at me and said, I never thought it would be so easy to be here now. Their lusts had driven them to sacrifice anyone and anything for, to fulfill that lust and to get that lust. A lustful heart will sacrifice anything and anyone to sa satisfy that desire. You all are probably familiar with the, um, uh, the uh, novel Moby Dick. Captain Ahab was monomaniac, and what was he in pursuit of? The white whale. He wanted Moby Dick, and he wanted him bad. He sacrificed his boats. He sacrificed all but one so, uh, sailor, sailor, Ishmael, and he sacrificed his very life to get that whale. And ultimately, in the last words, uh, Herman Melville wrote, the rope wrapped it around Ahab's leg, and it sucked him into the deep of the water, and no one saw him again. His lust overtook him and sank him deep to his death. Our lust will destroy us. Notice where it says that our lust leads us. Verse, um, in our text, verse, ah, I should have been there. Made you guys turn to it, but I wasn't there. Um, it says, our lust leads us to verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. To pursue the flesh is to pursue our own death. See, we think we're pursuing pleasure, but in reality, it's leading us to death. To indulge in the things of earth is to set ourselves in direct opposition with the Lord of life and say, I don't need what you can give me. I will go somewhere else. I need what I want. Chris read for us this morning Zephaniah. It says, the great day of the Lord is near. This is the warning of God. This is, God has promised that it's, the wrath of God is coming. And the very fact that he revealed that to us is a warning. You better stop doing what you're doing. 
Stop chasing after the lusts of this world. Stop chasing after the gods of the world. Find your satisfaction in me alone. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. You may say, wow, that's really harsh. I say, it's really merciful that God tells us where we are going and why we need to stop. And he tells us, don't go there. Not just, just say no, but he says, say yes to me. Set your mind on me. Find your satisfaction in me. I, you were designed for me. If you have put your faith in Christ, you are united to the life of Christ, you must wage war on the deeds of the flesh. That civil war, that battle within you, yet to put off the deeds of the flesh is, is difficult, it's hard. You must kill it. You must cut it off. Not only are we called to put lust to death, but we're also called to put away the passions of the flesh. Put away the passions of the flesh in verses 8 and 9. Have you ever considered, I know Denise and I have had this conversation before, what would happen if somebody broke into our house at night trying to do us harm? And usually the answer is you would either A, get your Glock, or B, get your Louisville Slugger. And you would go and say, listen, you don't belong here, this is my house, get out. And prayerfully, they would realize the urgency of the situation and they would get out. You don't extend them hospitality. There are no common courtesies that you have. They need to get out and they need to get uh, out now because they don't belong here. This is your house and your family, and you will wage war on them to protect this house. This is the very sentiment that Paul is communicating in verse 8. He is saying when a tidal wave of passion or a surge of anger is felt and overwhelmed your house, it must be treated like an intruder that is breaking into your house at three in the morning. You don't make him coffee. You don't make him breakfast. You don't say, hey, come sit down, have a seat. You say, get out and get out now. That repulsion, that vehemence, that passion should be what it is as Christians when the waves of passion from the flesh come upon us, we should fight and say, you don't belong here, I belong to Jesus, get out and get out now. When we begin to see those things, because often I'm just blowing off a little steam, I'm just, I'm just telling the truth, I'm being honest, all that is is another way I'm allowing the passion of anger and hatred and bitterness to overcome me. We have to, Paul unmasks these things and calls them what they are. They're passions of the sinful flesh and they need to go. Notice what he says, anger. Anger is a smoldering, seething 
hatred that is, festers in our heart. We sometimes say, he's an angry young man. He's not throwing a fit at that time, but it's the seething hatred that is brewing in his heart. And then how do we see that? It's wrath, this tipping point when anger that boils in the heart comes out in hateful words and deeds designed to inflict damage and hurt others. Malice, he continues. It's the Greek word blasphema, blasphemy. When our mouth gives voice to the hatred and the passion in our heart and we rejoice in other person's miseries. Slander. The anger and hatred comes out in the form of speech that damages people, that robs them of their honor and dignity, and defames their character. Obscene talk is filthy language that revels in evil and immorality and perversion, things that we saw earlier. It contaminates both the speaker and the hearer. And then he continues, he says, do not lie to one another. Lying is the bending, twisting, disregarding, and contorting of the truth in order to gain an advantage over somebody else. And again, this is not, I'm just telling the truth. I'm just being honest. I'm just letting off a little steam. Unveil it. That is the passions of the sinful flesh and call it what it is, it's sin. And it, as it's incongruent. It has no part in the life of a person that says, I belong to Jesus. Each one of us um, is sinful passions that threaten to overtake and overpower us in the heart of the individual. Well, you say, well, I'm a believer. I have the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the only person that can dwell in the heart of a believer is grace because they're so miserable around other people. Why? Because they have embraced the passions and the lusts of the flesh. We need the grace of God, but we need to put this stuff to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if we don't, if we allow these waves of passion and hatred and anger to wash over us, we will be, they will control us. Words plunge into the soul, and they cause harm, and they cause pain. Words spoken under the influence of the sinful passion have the power to irrevocably change situations and relationships. It's what the book of Proverbs says over and over again. A man is commended according... That, no, that's not the right one. It's 1218. Let me read it to you. That's, that's a good one, too. 12:18 There are the one um, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts but the tongue of the wise brings healing when spoken in anger and fueled by hate words kill and destroy and they hurt whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me had no idea that is the most unbiblical uh, 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 saying or whatever you call that. It's simply not true. I'd much rather have a rock thrown at me than a hateful word from someone I love and somebody uh, that loves me. Because you can't take those words back. 
They're like the sword thrusts into your heart, into your soul. They hurt, and they keep going over and over and over again. And that's why we say you need to kick the passions out. They don't belong in the house and the heart of a believer. But how do we deal with that? I think we all agree because we're all hurt. Some of you, I can tell, have been hurt by words recently. How do we deal with that? We have to remember the source of those passions, hateful words and hurtful words and actions and deeds. It's sin. But when what anger, anger itself is not sinful. It's wrong anger. God is angry towards sin. Jesus was angry towards the religious leaders who were perverting and exploiting the poor and perverting worship of the temple. Anger tells us these two things. One, something is really important to me. Something's important to me. And then anger tells us another thing, that something is wrong with what's important. Let me give you an example. You're driving down the, car, in the road in the car, your kid's in the back seat strapped in, you love your children, you care for their safety, and some bonehead cuts you off and puts you and your children in danger. You get angry. Is that a sin? No. Because your children are important, they're recklessly driving and they're, they're putting you at danger. The problem is how you respond to that. You don't put the pedal to the metal, go and cut them off, show them the tall finger, and then try to run them off the road. You have responded to the right thing in the wrong way. We can also respond to the wrong things. If the waitress at lunch messes up our order and gives us whatever instead of whatever, and we just pour our wrath out on her, that's getting angry about the wrong things in the wrong way. We can get angry about the right things in the wrong way as well. Where the Spirit comes in is when we say that we need to be angry about the right things and in the right way. We must respond to the right things in the right way. And this is where the flesh short-circuits us. It convinces us to set our mind on earthly things and do whatever it takes to preserve that thing, a.k.a. idolatry. When someone threatens our idols, hatred spills out in the form of rage and slander and malice and lies, and we will do whatever we possibly can do to preserve those things. Therefore, I ask you, Ocean Park, when you see the sinful passions festering in your heart and overflowing in, the word, in your words, you need to ask, where is this coming from? It's not enough to say don't use bad words and don't do this and make a bunch of rules. You have to get to the heart of the problem. Because you can deal with the symptoms, you can try to fight the army, but unless you cut off their means of survival and you weaken them and weaken them and starve them, then at that point they are less powerful and you can overtake them. We need to realize that seeking the kingdom will not be easy. And in fact, you will be on the receiving end of pettiness and hostility and aggression. And in the face of that, we need to be faithful and loving. The passions of the flesh must be put away. You must starve the self-centered passions of the flesh in the eyes of the world and, and look them in the eyes and say, Get out. You don't belong here. I belong to Jesus. 
and that's going to be flushed out more. It's coming on. We're, it's a negative sermon today. Get rid of this stuff. Next week, put this stuff on. Put on Jesus. To live for Christ, you must put sin to death. We're called to um, put the lusts of the flesh to death. We put away the, the, um, the anger and, and the um, passions, and then we're called to put down the barriers. Break them down, verse 10 and 11. One of the things, when I do watch TV, I don't watch a lot, but when I have my choice, and Denise doesn't commandeer the remote, I love to watch, um, like, what, are they, what do you call them? Renovation, home renovation shows. Fixer Upper, Rehab Attic. I love that kind of stuff. I love watching the transformation of this dumpy house that nobody wants to the most beautiful house on the block that people are scrambling. I want that house. It's the same house, and you can see the rooms and the layout, but you can see it's completely different. And that doesn't happen by just going in and putting a slap of payment, some curtains, and an area rug on the ground. That happens with a sledgehammer, and that happens with a jackhammer. It happens with blood, sweat, and tears as you rip up the floor, get rid of that nasty shag carpet from the 60s that should have been gone in the 80s but lived another 30 years. You break down the walls, and you, put, you make it fresh and new, and you put new appliances and get everything avocado green out of the house. Get it out. But by the time, it's barely the same house, but you know it's the same house. And it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful thing to behold. Brothers and sisters, this is the Christian life. The Holy Spirit comes in on demolition day and starts breaking things down in order to transform the believer into the vision that the Father sees. And that vision is to be like Jesus. In thoughts, in words, in actions. To do this, to be able to put down these old barriers, one, we need a renewed knowledge and we need a renewed humanity. Notice this renewed knowledge that puts down the barriers in verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices, priorities, uh, methodologies, thinking, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of the Creator. The more you know of Christ, the brighter His light shines into the deep recesses of your heart and reveals the lusts and the passions that you never even knew existed. And as the light is shined deep into your heart, like insects and bugs and nocturnal animals that flee from the, the light, the light of Christ shines deep and it drives those things out. It puts them to death and it puts them away and it fills it with the life that is in Christ. As this begins to happen, and it's not instantaneous. It's a gradual process, a gradual of starving the flesh and feeding the spirit that is in us. We become to look and act like Jesus. Paul says in another book that he wrote, we all we, and we all, 
with unveiled faces beholding the, the glory of the Lord, what does it say? Are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. This is a, called sanctification, purification, if you will. That happens not gradually, it happens not instantaneous, but gradually. Positionally, when we are saved, we now stand before God as his child, but we still have that civil war within us, and it's the slow, gradual process of starving the flesh and feeding the spirit until one day we are glorified, and that will happen in heaven when the flesh is put away, destroyed, and defeated. It's like the holy sanctification of a... Um, of a Aquafina purifying bottle where you put in that dirty, nasty water that smells like chlorine and tastes like, like the city and you put it through that purification process and it slowly begins to make and purify that water and make it fresh and clean and something that is pleasing to drink and you want more. You want the coolness and refreshment of that. Our lives are that process of sanctification being made to be like Jesus as our flesh is ripped out and starved and the Spirit comes in and dwells and renovates. The more we learn of the life and nature of Christ, the more His kingdom comes and we are infused with His life. We're no longer crippled and frozen by anger and fear but we're set free from those things because of the life that we have in Christ. We're no longer consumed by the passions of flesh. We're set free from those things because of Christ. We're no longer obsessed with ourselves, but we're set free to live for Christ. Being transformed in the image of Jesus allows us each day to be, to be set free from that burden of self and the paralyzing mire of sinful passion. Just as the law of aerodynamics allows a big, heavy 747 that will, weighs millions of tons, it allows that big chunk of metal to fly. Why? It overcomes the law of gravity because of the law of aerodynamic, which fuels it and brings it to fly. That's what the Spirit of Christ does in the heart. It overcomes the sinful flesh and allows us to live and think and move like Jesus. Not only is this renewed humanity as we know Jesus better, we want to be more like Him and align our hearts and calibrate our hearts to Him, we're also called to a renewed humanity in verse 10 and 11. Here, Paul writes, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Our third list that Paul gives as we put to death the flesh says we experience this transformation, this kingdom that we have of Christ, not only in eternity, but we begin to experience that now, and it changes the way we see the world and see our neighbor and see everything. We no longer say those people. And you can fill in whatever social or political or ethnic group, those people or them. And we begin to transform how we see the world. 
Notice, Paul says the knowledge of Christ and what he has done in the kingdom of heaven changes the racial barriers, Greek and Jew. The religious barriers, circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian and Scythian, cultural barriers. Slave and free, social barriers. By default, sinful passions of lust in the flesh want to drive us to tribalism. Our little group, us four and no more. And we fight. Our nation is being poisoned right now because of tribalism. We want our little group of people, political, ethnic, uh, uh, religious, whatever, tribalism. We're going to go and we're going to build the walls high and we're not going to let anybody in. But notice what Christ does. He comes in and it says Christ is all. He is everything. He is Lord of creation, Lord of new creation. And he's not just in certain ethnicities, in certain cultures, in certain social uh, barriers, in certain political persuasions. Christ transcends those sinful divisions that have been created. I remember in 1993, I worked for about two months at a uh, camp in Hong Kong. I was the only Westerner there, and they were the sweetest, kindest people. Usually about midweek, we would have um, a staff meeting. Now, staff meetings are awful in the United States when you speak English and they're in your language. They're even worse when you're in China speaking Cantonese and you're sitting there, you have no idea. It's boring to the 10th power. But what would happen is there were times that after the staff meeting, the staff would begin a time of worship. And they would pray and they would do the devotional, but there was a song that they sing out of Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water. And I knew it. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul panteth after you. And then we, I sang in English, they sang in Cantonese, and then we sat down in a group of two or three of us and we began to pray. And I remember vividly the young man praying in Cantonese, and it was at that point my view of God radically changed, thankfully. Because at that point, I believed God was a white English-speaking man who lived in the United States in the suburbs. Because that was me. Because we fashioned God in our own image. I wasn't being racist. I was just ignorant of my own prejudice and my own barriers that existed. But because as I understood and began to get a clearer, more focused, more high-definition view of Jesus, it changed how I saw my Asian brothers and sisters. It changes. The gospel break down, breaks down the walls of race, tribe, nationality, and class. It regenerates and creates a born-again people and a new humanity. A new humanity that is not marked by the hatred of tribalism, but the love of Christ. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Disciples that are Greek and Jew. Disciples that are circumcised and uncircumcised. Disciples from barbarians and Scythians. Disciples from slaves and free. How will they know if you have love for one another? 
as we begin to get a clear, crisp, high-definition picture of who God is, it changes how we see the world, and the barriers that exist come down. It was this realization in the second century that um, the pagans uh, and the leaders of the uh, Roman Empire looked at the Christians and said, see how they love one another. Ocean Park, may this be true of us, that the barriers of ethnicity and tradition and social and economic prosperity be demolished by the sledgehammer of grace and replaced with the beauty of God's grace and love that is a sweet aroma that exists between us. And I, I look out in our congregation, we have a beautiful cross-section And I want more. I want more color, more experience, more nationalities, more life experience, more social economic places. Uh, I want rich and poor because that's what heaven is going to look like. The gospel is not colorblind. The gospel sees the beauty and the richness and the vividness of the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And to be able to do that, to live for Christ today as we will for eternity, we must put sin to death. So in close, I ask you this question. What are the lusts of the flesh that you desire? Because they're all different. We all struggle. Uh, From the littlest of us to the oldest of us. What are the passions of the flesh that you have allowed to take residence in your home, in your heart? What are the old barriers that, you need, that need to be demolished by grace? I want you to pray that I may see a better, clearer, more fuller picture of Jesus, that I may be emboldened to attack my sin. This past week, what are you filling your mind with? What are you reading? What are you watching? What do you listen to? Let me ask this. What did you do more of this week? Did you Netflix and chill? Or did you delight and meditate on the law of God? Which one did you do more? I'm not telling you to get rid of Netflix. I'm telling you to set your things, your mind on things that are above. And that will change how you use your Netflix. What did you fill your mind with this week? Illicit pictures on the internet or the beauty and the glory of God's word? What did you read this week? The Wall Street Journal, Sports Illustrated, Glamour, Rolling Stone, uh, Reader's Digest, in search of ways to appease your idols? Or did you, did you read the Word of God for its life-giving, sin-poisoning grace? Now, I don't want you to, make feel, you to feel guilty. Oh, I have to cancel my Netflix and Hulu and I can't read secular books. No. I want you to seek Christ. I want you to recognize the armies that are waging war in your life, and I want you to cut the ports off. Cut their reinforcements. Don't let them so they starve and rot, and that they are much easier to defeat. Because over time, at first, those passions and those lusts, they're hard. And on our own, they get us every time. We try to put them in little cages of, of, of rules, and we put them in cages of, 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 of self-denial. But what happens is that's the slightest opening, they burst forth. 
And like that bad 80s movie of gremlins, when you feed them after midnight or get them wet, they take over time. And what do you have to do? You have to kill them. You have to expose them to the light of the word of God, and that will kill those things. But it will be war. Jesus says if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. But it's better that you lose one of your members than the whole body be thrown into hell. He says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Romans 13, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its sinful nature. Brothers, if your sin, your lust is after pornography, block your internet, get a filter, or downgrade to a flip phone. If your lust is after sexual immoral relationship, uh, you need to break up. You need to move out. You need to cut off that relationship. If you lust after mere material position, uh, possessions, get rid of those things that are causing your lust to be fueled. Cut off the subscriptions. Stop going places where that are fueling the passions and lusts. You must choke it off before it chokes you. You must evict passion before it controls you. You must demolish the old barriers before they're divided, and you can't do it. But here's the good thing. The Holy Spirit of God can. He will give you what you need, when you need it, and the amount that you need, that you may have victory. Cry out to him and put to death those passions in lust and break down those barriers. Put off the old self and put on the old self. Live for Christ is to put sin to death. Throughout the war, uh, the Union Army proved they were ill-equipped to quench the fortitude of the rebel army. In 1960, or 1861, one in ten ships were intercepted by the blockade. 1864, three years later, the ships of the blockade's fleet was multiplied from 160 ships up to 400 ships and enabled them to intercept one out of every three ship that was coming to fuel the Confederate Army. In 1865, the Union fleet exceeded 800 ships and only tiny vessels designed for speed were able to get through the blockade. Over the course of the five years, the outnumbered and outsupplied Confederate Army to prove to be strong and determined opponent of the Union Army. However, they could not overcome the crippling effects of the blockade. Little by little, the anaconda-like grip of the blockade doomed the Confederacy and preserved the Union. Brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, by day by day, hand-to-hand combat and crying out to the Lord of Lords, our great mighty warrior, we can set our minds on things above and slowly starve the flesh that we may experience the life of Christ today and for eternity. For to live for Christ, we must put sin to death.